We pray for all of our, I mean, millions of college students that are going back to school this week, last week, um, in the weeks to come, Father, all across this nation, Father. Um, many of them are going, believing in you, and some of those, or many of those, if we read the, the, everything that we see correctly, are going to lose their faith in the process of higher education, Father. We pray that you would raise up men and women of God in all of those places, throughout all of those universities, that would teach the people, um, the young people who are coming into there, about you, Father. Father, we just thank you, praise you, and love you, and just ask this in your name. Amen. Good morning. We're going to begin worship this morning with singing Sanctuary together. this morning with my favorite hymn. Sorry, I felt like I could do that this week. Let's sing Lily of the Valley together.
love the stark comp—not uh, comprise, com- contrast. Man, y'all, we started school this week. I used all my brain power there. I love the stark contrast in that song. If you're really listening to the words, the whole chorus goes back to you know those godly um, characteristics that are unmatched of God, but also how He was so human in the form of Jesus Christ and how he wept and how he celebrated and how he slept and he needed those things. And so that's why we love that song so much, God. If you'll stand with us, we're going to continue worshiping together as we sing Come Thou Fount. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you so much for just um, allowing us to come into your house this morning to worship and praise your name, God. And Lord, um, as we came into the sanctuary and opened up our service, God, Lord, our prayer was that you would prepare us to be a sanctuary, God, so that um, we're not just focused on you on Sundays when we're in this building, God, but we're focused on you every day um, and every minute, God. So much so that when we leave this sanctuary, God, that we, your people, are still your sanctuary. Because we know the church is not a building, God, but um, a body of people, Lord. So this week, will you just allow us to be the sanctuary um, in whatever paths you put us in, God. And may we honor and worship you through every scenario you give us, God. Lord, I just thank you so much um, for all your many blessings, God. And all the blessings that are yet to come, God. Lord, when our hearts get um, prone to wonder, Lord, I just pray that you pull us back in closer than ever before, God, and if that's any of us this morning, God, may that be our prayer, to just pull back in closer to you, Lord. We just love you, and we thank you for allowing us to join, Lord, and we just lift up this service to you. May we continue to study um, you diligently through your word, God, and be blessed through the passage. I love you and praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Children are going with Sarah Beth in the back for Children's Church. Okay, thank you, Catherine. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Our passage this week from Luke's gospel follows along with where we have been throughout the gospel of Luke. I don't know how long we've been in Luke. Does anybody know how long we've been in Luke? A long time, right? Verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Luke's good news. And I actually read the first four verses of Luke because I think they are important to understanding the context and where Jesus is going in this particular passage where he teaches his disciples about their future. 
And as he teaches them about their future, we learn not only about the future of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70 as it will be destroyed, but we also learn about the future of the world and the end of the world. I thought of naming today's sermon, title it, It's the End of the World as We Know It. But instead, I'm going to call this God's Provision for Our Future. God's Provision for Our Future. So Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw a certain poor woman putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So that's an important moment. That's an important setting where Jesus gives us the worth of this poor widow's offering in God's accounting. She gave everything that she had. She gave out of her poverty and what she gave was worth more than what everyone else gave combined. So this took place in the temple courtyard. So they would have seen the magnificent temple and all its grounds in their sight as Jesus taught about worship. And the reason that's important is look at verse 5. While some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said. So picture the scene. There's the poor widow giving her two small coins. And as a backdrop, this magnificent temple with all of its wealth, all of its glory. Notice what Jesus says next. <clears throat> As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Wait, what? This magnificent temple is going to be completely destroyed? I've got some questions about that. In verse 7, they ask the question, I tried to think of a similar uh, situation or analogy, and I guess for me, this is what I thought of. It'd be like taking me to the campus of the University of Georgia, us walking to Sanford Stadium. Billy, you know about Sanford Stadium. Go dogs. And us seeing how enormous and how elaborate and how important in our culture I mean, that's where the dogs play. Look at this place. Think about the, the millions that it took. And then somebody saying to us as we stand there gazing, all of this one day is going to be completely destroyed. Well, my first question would be, when? <laughs> I mean, are, are they going to get in this particular football season, or is it going to be sometime later? And here's what the, the other thought I would have had w would be this. Well, if, if Sanford Stadium is going down, good grief, what does that mean about, about everything else? Because if it were to fall, then could this be the end of the world as we know it? Because if you took those disciples and you told them the temple is going to be destroyed, they would have said to themselves, wait a second. If the temple's going down, then what's going to be left? So you see the significance of their question and why their curiosity is more than just curiosity. This is heavy stuff. So in Jesus' answer, we're going to have some things that are elements of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans 
in AD 70. But there also are elements in this passage I'm about to read of the future. And there are elements that relate to judgments that took place in the Old Testament. And as I go through Ezekiel on Wednesday nights, a lot of this same language was used when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in, in another day and time. And then there are elements in this text we're about to read that relate to the future, the end, the return of Christ. So how do we sort through this? I'm going to look for in this the transformational intent. And what I mean by that is this. If everything's going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should we be? And that's exactly what Bill's passage that he read said. If all these things are going to come to this particular end, if everywhere we look and everything we think about as human beings, if all that is going to end in that way, what kind of people does God desire that we become right now? I'm preaching already. I haven't even read the text. <laughs> and you're thinking, we're in trouble this morning. Where was I? Verse 7. Thank you. I heard it from the back. They questioned him saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And then he said to them, See to it that you be not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, or the time is at hand. He says, Do not go after them. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars, you hear of disturbances, do not be terrified. Look, don't be afraid. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. He continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues. And famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And I'm thinking, this is beyond me. This is, this is beyond us. But before all these things, I'm in verse 12, they will lay their hands on you. They, they are coming after you. They're coming after you. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues, prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And as you unfold church history, where it's been, where it is, and where it's going, these things have been and will be taking place and increasingly so, like birth pangs increase in anticipation of a birth. But, verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. An opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. You will be delivered up even by your parents, your brothers, your relatives and friends. And they'll put some of you to death. If we were not at Glenlock Baptist Church this morning and we were in other cultures across our globe, that statement that I just read would, would feel very different. It would feel much more personal. It would feel much more... Um, Weighty. Parents, brothers, relatives, friends, put to death. You will be hated by all on account of my name. So I, I want to say, so, so brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. Prepare yourself. In advance, not to defend yourself, but rather uh, to lean upon Christ. And share Christ. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Yet not a hair 
of your head will perish. God is sovereign and in control and no one can ever touch your soul. That's how particular and how powerful God is. Not a hair. And now your soul, here's why. Because by your endurance, you will gain your lives, your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. And that, that's what happened in AD 70. And this was to be seen as judgment from God using the Romans as his instruments to come in and just wipe out everything, including the temple. So that's why I say this relates to AD 70, but it, then that foreshadows other judgments that are to come, including the final judgment. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, God's judgment, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his warnings. He's faithful to his promises. Woe to those who are with child. Woe to those who nurse babes in those days. There will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They were ungodly. They were corrupt. They were not prepared to believe and did not believe in the Messiah Christ, God's Son. And because their worship was corrupt and because they were so different from the poor widow who gave all as she gave little, God was judging them for their rejection of Christ and their murder of Christ. I'm just trying to explain a little bit as we go because there's, there, there's so much here. Wrath to this people. Well, what did they do that was so deserving of wrath? Injustice. Killing God. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles of all people until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Wait a second. That's a hopeful verse. That's a verse that implies that someone's in control of history who is unfolding all this. There's a time of the Gentiles, and then when that's over, there's hope again for Israel. That's there, isn't it? Verse 25. This gets real big. This gets real cosmic. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and upon the earth dismay among the nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear. And the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, who has the authority to shake the powers of the heavens? Here it is. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Straighten up. Lift up your posture. Straighten up. Lift up your heads. Because your redemption... Your redemption is drawing near. Let's think about that word redemption. How it came to us. What it means to us. And what Jesus fully purchased for us when he died on Calvary's cross as a sacrifice and wrath-bearing atonement for you and me. He purchased past, present, and future for those who are redeemed. Lift up your heads. Full consummation of glory is near. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the words of Christ. Help me preach this. Help us listen to this. And take this to heart. Um, these words are inescapable. These words are reality. In these words are warnings and encouragements and promises that should change us, 
that should shape us and transform us. Father, all of this information is for transformation, and I pray that that would happen in my life and in every life listening to your word here at Glenlock today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So my youngest son, Bennett, is not in church today. He is out of town with other family members, so I'm going to pick on him a little. <laughs> you miss church, you're fair game. This summer has been a transitional summer from Bennett. He's a, for Bennett. He's 11 years old. You've already heard me talk about riding Superman earlier this summer. Well, let me tell you what happened to Bennett. He went through a shift from being absolutely terrified and refusing to ride any roller coaster to now he is absolutely obsessed with roller coasters, wants to go to Six Flags every week, and spends too much time watching YouTube videos of roller coasters all across parks in America. Dad, when can we go to Carowinds in North Carolina? That type of thing. Do you remember the shift you went through when something that seemed so terrifying and so awful and you never do it and then, and then you, you begin to enjoy it? So one of the things that he's asked me is, Dad, which is your favorite roller coaster? Well, to me, it's an easy answer. It's the Great American Scream Machine at Six Flags Over Georgia. And so you watch all these coaster videos, and then you begin to realize that it's really important to know before you ride a roller coaster what to expect. <laughs> it's very helpful to know kind of how high that first drop is, where the, where the really strong turns are. And if you are going to ride the Great American Scream Machine, let me give you a heads up. At the end, it is so abrupt and, and, and startling and shocking that it, if, you're, if you're not prepared for it, if you don't brace yourself for it, you might get injured. <laughs> now, why am I talking about roller coasters as we read eschatology? Because kind of like as Bennett is watching coasters and courses, and you learn by watching this, you learn what to expect if you were to get on one of those things. Where do you brace yourself? Where do you relax and feel a little comfortable? Where do you hold on tight? Uh, do you get on the thing at all or not? Why is Jesus telling his disciples what's coming next? It's got to be more than just to come up with a, a plan or a map as to how the future is going to unfold. It's got to be something more than that. It's to prepare them. It's to assure them. It's to warn them. It's to encourage them. In fact, it is to save them. Life is a lot like riding a roller coaster, isn't it? And I could, we could go into that, that analogy all day, all day long. There, there are hills and there's valleys and there's twists and there's turns. And then it comes to a definite stop, a definite end. Now, I, I guess, I mean, is this the roller coaster of eschatology? I don't know. But I do know this. All theology is for doxology. And what I mean by that is everything we learn here is ultimately to lead to praise and worship and change in us. If everything is going in this direction, if this is the course that God has set, and this course is unalterable, you can't go changing the coaster here. This is what it's going to be. This is what is ahead then what kind of people does God desire and call us to be? And the other thing I want to know is, God, what are you going to provide for us as we enter this thing called the future? I think in this teaching, in this text, Jesus is telling us 
what God is going to provide for us as we enter into the coming age. He's telling his disciples, A.D. 70, not long after his life, death, and resurrection, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. This is what you need to expect. This is how it's going to be. He's telling believers today, he's telling Christians all over the world right now, this is what the end is going to be like. This is the course ahead of you. This is what to expect, and this is what God is going to provide. So let's dive in. I'm giving you this morning the transformational intent. Here is what God is going to provide along this course of our future. Number one, God will provide the guidance we need. God will provide the guidance we need. Therefore, believe his wisdom and don't lean on your own understanding. I, I see this in the first few verses. They're impressed with what man is impressed with. God is not impressed. It is said of the temple that if you had seen it from a distance, you would have thought that it was a huge, majestic, snow-capped mountain. Kind of like when you go out west. There were days when I woke up and I'd look at the horizon and I would say, is that a mountain or a cloud? <laughs> the temple was so majestic. What is that? Newcomers to Jerusalem would say. But in all its majestic glory... It was corrupt and empty and made a mockery of God and his, his worth and His reverence. So Jesus is giving them an awareness of what is going to happen. Destruction and calamity. It's going to be thrown down. So they need to put to rest any idea that any type of human construction, human work, is ever going to usher in or we are ever going to progress to some sort of utopia apart from God, it's not happening. So he says two crucial things here. God is not impressed with false, empty, hollow, bogus worship. Then he says, do not be misled and don't go after them. Do not be misled and don't go after them. You put Jesus Christ in your sights and you deny yourself and you take up your cross daily and follow him. He is the good shepherd and the good shepherd will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You put him in your sight and you follow him and his word daily and he will guide you through whatever the future may hold. That's good news. So entering into difficult times and entering into uncertain days, don't be misled and don't go after them, but hold fast to Christ. He has given us in His Word all we need for life and godliness. This is a point about the sufficiency of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. There is no other Christ. There is no other salvation. There is no other name given under heaven by which men might be saved. This is His work, and we need to trust and follow His wisdom, for it is the guidance we need. I'm not going to know all I want to know, but in Christ I do already have all I need to know. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. Paul tells the Corinthians something very similar which came to mind, and I think I've repeated this recently a couple of times already, not this morning but in other Sundays. They were so tempted by idolatry. They were so tempted by false worship, by other avenues of hope and salvation, completely complicating things. And I love what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, 
that your minds have been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He is enough. He is truth. He is the way. He is the life. He is guiding them through the destruction of Jerusalem and everything the church will face from that point on and forever. It is He who is guiding them. He is the guide. Don't ever be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'll move on. Number two. Number one is God will provide the guidance you need. Believe in His wisdom, not your own. Number two. This is, again, His provision for us for our future. The second thing is He will provide the confidence we need. The confidence we need. This is just one verse. When you hear of wars and disturbances, don't be terrified. What? Jerusalem is going to fall and you don't expect us to be afraid? Do not be intimidated. Do not be afraid. Then he says something interesting in verse 9. These things must take place. That must is a divine must. It's the same must that Jesus used throughout Luke when he says, I must go to the cross. I must go to Jerusalem. I must go through Samaria. What does that tell us? God's in complete control. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice and rest. Do not be terrified. God will provide the confidence we need. Trust His sovereignty, not your own. These things must take place. Don't be afraid. God's got it all. He's gone ahead of you. He is going to be with you. He is going to be in you, and you are in His favor. And the phrase I just gave you came directly from the mouth of Ms. Beth East earlier this week. Beth, as many of you know, had a pretty major surgery a couple of weeks ago. Called Beth this week just to check in, see how she's doing. She sounded great. <laughs> and I said, Beth, I says, you sound so confident. She says, I am. I says, wow. She said, I'm in God's favor. She said, I'm his child. She said, anything that I ever face, he's already gone before me. Anything that I go through, he is with me. And not only that, but I, I, I know he's in me and I feel it and I know it. I said, Beth, you just preached a good part of this upcoming Sunday sermon. <laughs> Do you know anything about that type of confidence? That kind of security that you in Christ are in God's favor and there's no condemnation that can come to you. That he sees you in Christ and his favor rests upon you just as it rests upon his son. There's no fear in that kind of love. Perfect love drives out that kind of fear. So don't trust yourself. But put all your confidence in Him. He provides the guidance we need. He provides the confidence we need. The third provision is that He's going to provide the opportunity we need. Now, you may not think you need opportunity, but if you're kept on the sidelines long enough, you're going to be pulling on the coach saying, hey, when am I going to go in? I remember that as an eight, nine-year-old kid. I weighed 55 pounds soaking wet, and I was constantly bugging the coach, when are you going to put me in? And I just get back. <laughs> and so at the end of the game, he'd put me in, and he'd say, you go in at deep, deep safety, which means, you know, almost off the field. 
But you and I were created for significance and opportunity. We're unique. We're gifted. We want to make a contribution and participate in something bigger than ourselves. So when you are tested, when the future comes, he's saying, and this is in verses 10 through 13, nation against nation, kingdom against king. Where do I fit in in all that? Is there anything that we can do? Or do we just despair? Do we just give up? Do we just give in? Do we just throw in the towel? Do we quit trying to love people and make a difference? No. He says that you're going to be brought before many difficult people and many difficult situations, but this is your opportunity. This is a test and an opportunity for you to see the genuineness of your faith. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in forgiveness? Do you believe in glory? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe He really is the Messiah? Be prepared to give a testimony, but don't defend yourself. Because there's no defending you and me. There is no righteousness in you and me. We cannot show, somebody has said, how great we are and how great Jesus is at the same time. So he says, do not defend yourself because there is no defending you. Do you not know who you are? You are nothing apart from him. All of your goodness is as filthy rags before God. Do not defend yourself but point to Christ. Your testing is an opportunity to point beyond us and beyond ourselves to the glory of Jesus. That's the opportunity. So throughout church history, there have been certain martyrs who've done this. And I'm encouraged by this. I don't think we're to go out seeking martyrdom, right? Going out looking for suffering, but when it does come, we need to be ready. And make up our minds in advance not to defend ourselves, but God is going to give us, if we've got that living, vital relationship, through His Spirit, He is going to give you what you need to point to Christ and Christ alone, the truth. In a book on church membership, this is from Nine Marks, Jonathan Lehman. Fourth century historian Eusebius, a Roman historian, speaking of the Romans, described one early Christian named Sanctus who stood before his torturers in the year A.D. 177. Listen to his testimony. With such determination did he stand up to their own slots that he would not tell them, and this is what they wanted to know, he would not tell them his name, he would not tell them his race, He would not tell them his birthplace. He would not tell them whether he was slave or free. No categories mattered at this point. To every question he replied in Latin, their own language, I am a Christian. This he proclaimed over and over again instead of giving his name, birthplace, nationality, and everything else about him and not another word did the heathen hear from him? I've read other testimonies. He kept saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And they tortured him and they killed him. Now you and I may not have that level opportunity. But every day we have opportunity. And the book of Colossians says, make the most of every opportunity you have because the days are evil. They are passing, they are difficult, they are uncertain, and they're incomplete. God will provide the opportunity that we need. Look to Christ, consider the testimony of Christ, and speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love, and God will use you to testify to the glory of His Son. Number four, if you're still with me, God God will provide the endurance that we need. The endurance that we need. Now, what I did here, I plucked out this verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your souls, your lives. 
I'll talk a little bit next week about how to increase your endurance. But right now, we just need to know that God will provide the endurance. Greater is he who is in you. He will keep you to the end. You're trusting not in yourself, but in your weakness. You're trusting in the Christ. By your endurance, you will save your lives. It will be his promises, his spirit, his endurance in you that will keep you till the very end. And neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and you are more than conquered through him. The illustration I use here is back when I learned to water ski. Now, thank my parents that they taught me how to water ski. That season of life, how much fun that was. But learning's difficult. So dad says, you hold on to the rope. (laughs) This boat is strong enough to pull you up. There's going to be water coming in your face and you're going to think you're drowning. And you're going to want to give up and kick off your your skis and go straight, straight to the bottom. But you hold on. And if you hold long enough, and if you trust long enough, this boat and your legs locked in, you will come up. And here life comes at you. (laughs) I mean, read these things. This is deep water. This is cosmic upheaval. This is the end of everything that is as we see it now. But by your endurance, you will gain your lives. How? By holding strong to Christ. Because he has already gone through this and come up on our behalf. And his strength and his endurance in us ensures that we will make it to the very end. So let me go ahead and conclude this sermon by getting to the very end. What a verse 28 is. God will provide the hope that we need. Our only hope in life or death is that we belong to Jesus. Our only hope in life or death is that we have been redeemed by Christ. Look at verse 28. 25 through 28 tells us that there is hope in the return of Christ. There is glory to come. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's there's a place where there's no more crying, no more war, no more pain, no more calamity, no more famine, no more disease. How do we get there? Ought to be the passion of our heart. When these things start to take place, I love this. Hey, straighten up. Lift up your heads. Redemption is drawing nigh. Jesus took upon himself on the cross the wrath and the judgment and the destruction and the calamity, the earthquake as the rock shook, the darkness that came in the middle of the day. Creation was feeling the effects of the pure, sinless Son of God taking the judgment that I deserve, redeeming me, purchasing me, past, present, future, forever. And, and what He purchased for us is not fully realized yet. The finished work of Christ and the price he paid, we're not enjoying all the benefits of that yet. But when this begins to come, lift your head up because at his return you will finally in consummation see everything that he redeemed you from and for. Full redemption is coming nigh. I've been there. I know what it's like to lose a game, walk back to the dugout after a strikeout, to have some miserable, embarrassing failure, and you got your head down. And you start feeling sorry for yourself, and you don't want to look up and face anybody. And a good coach will always say, and some of you have had coaches or parents or teachers say this, Hey, get your head up. Get your heads up, guys. I know this was a loss. 
we'll get them next time, something like that, you know. <laughs> we'll have another shot. The river out there is still flowing. This is not the end of the world. Hey, but wait a second. He tells the church, get your heads up. This is the end of the world. Wow. This is the end of the world. It's the end of sin and death and suffering. The book is closed on this story and a new world begins. What hope we have in Christ, the risen Lord. Lift up your heads. Stand upright. When Mary stooped down and she thought Jesus was dead, she looked in that tomb and she heard a voice. And she turned and she looked. And she thought it was the gardener, but it was the risen Christ. Her living hope. Look up. Look up. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your love, the hope you give us in Christ, that we need not be terrified, we need not be misled, we need not be deceived. But you thankfully have given us not, not everything we would like to know, but everything we need to know. You've shown us this course in advance so that not only would be full, we be fully prepared, but that we would become people who live wisely, hopefully, confidently, graciously, lovingly. Knowing these truths to be real will have a real effect on our daily walk and witness and our peace, and our rest, and our contentment, and our joy will all come from looking up beyond this world to the world you have redeemed and purchased us for. May others see that living hope in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing 488 just as I him. You come as we sing.
you, Catherine. Uh, this morning, I have more good news. Seth and Jess Harper welcomed on July the 26th of this year, Haven Dawn Harper, healthy baby girl, and I think she's right back there at that door to your left. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Catherine wrote the weight down, nine pounds, 22 inches. Is that, is that correct? Congratulations to Seth and Jess. We have, this is what we do for all the babies at their first worship service at Glenlock, their first Bible. So, um, Katina, will you take that to Jess back there? Thank you. All right, don't forget, as we said earlier, youth, adults, and children tonight at 6, Children's Choir, big kickoff today. So, if you're interested at all in your children being in that, um, that starts tonight at 6. And Catherine, you can close this way. Choir at 5. We're going to sing the doxology because I didn't put anything else in there and really didn't think about it. Let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here Have a great week.